Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. In the spring of 2014, Eric Swope laced up his cleats for his first day of NFL training camp with the Indianapolis Colts. While such a destination is rare for any aspiring professional athlete, this was especially unusual in the case of Swope. Eric did not play college football, nor high school football, nor youth football, nor had he watched the Super Bowl in more than a decade. Yet somehow, Eric made the practice squad, and then eventually, the real squad, spending the next several years catching passes from Andrew Luck as an NFL tight end. In this episode, Eric tells his story. From growing up in Lake Elsinore and playing AAU basketball, to finding Harvard-Westlake and then the University of Miami, to then somehow finding a way to convert his ACC basketball skills to the route-running and pass-catching of the NFL. Through it all, however, Eric has conveyed both the inner confidence to pursue new challenges and the humility to seek guidance and wisdom from others whether it was the mentorship of John Wimbish and Greg Hilliard at Harvard-Westlake, or Jack Doyle and Reggie Wayne with the Indianapolis Colts. Eric has found success by being both an intrepid risk-taker and diligent student. Eric Swope on a very unexpected NFL career. This is The Supporting Cast. Swope, welcome to the supporting cast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining. And I know you're you're in the Bay Area today, so I appreciate you making the time to be with us. And you know, the first question that I have been starting really every conversation with, because of the last couple of years being so unique with the COVID nineteen pandemic, the first question I have just how are you doing personally uh, now that the pandemic feels like it is slowly subsiding, although there are still some positive tests and people we know still testing positive here and there. How are you doing now as the pandemic hopefully sort of starts to subside? Yeah, I'm doing really well. The pandemic, of course, you know, was extremely challenging for everybody. And I feel like no one will forget March 13th. I know for me, we were actually planning a birthday party for my older brother. His birthday is March 22nd. My mom had just retired from the school district. She's been a librarian most of my childhood. Uh-huh. So we were going to do like a surprise retirement slash birthday party. And we were like trying to fly people in and all this stuff. And then wow. we heard about this thing called COVID. And <laughs> let's just say things still need to happen. But uh Aside from that, though, we didn't have anything dangerous happen within our family, you know, thankfully. And, you know, a lot of it was just laying low. Luckily, we're in California. So, you know, we didn't have to deal with harsh weather that naturally forces you inside. We were able to kind of just enjoy where we're at. Uh, my fiance and I, we, ha- we were renting a home up here in the Bay Area. So for the most part, things were peaceful. And I will say on the sports side of things, though, COVID definitely rendered some different challenges. And where were you professionally when the pandemic hit, I guess, two years ago? 
So I originally moved out here, formerly playing with the Indianapolis Colts. I had signed with the Raiders. We were out here. The Raiders had let me go. So I was actually in search of a new team, training my life away. And it felt like actually going into 2020 that I was kind of going to get things back in the right direction. I changed agencies, was having a lot of good preliminary talks with some of the scouts. And then it was like, okay, this is going to be a year to make a big push. And then when COVID hit, a lot of like the free agent protocols that coincide with the NFL. They're very strict as it is. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, everyone was nervous with COVID. So let's just say in a hypothetical in-season week, Tuesdays is essentially the Sunday for the NFL work week. And that's where new guys come in, get a chance to work out or opportunities, so on and so forth. They normally have that every Tuesday. You fly in in the week and you go and work out. Because of COVID, they reduced it all the way to the point because there was a couple breakouts with a few franchises that you could do like one workout a month based mm. off necessity. And at the tight end position, I don't want to take away from my <laughs> my profession, but some teams can get along pretty well with not the greatest of tight ends and not a hybrid tight end at that. So it definitely put a huge wrinkle in the tail end of my career. And let us know before, because we're going to go back into your whole story and kind of figure yeah. out how you got to the NFL, which is a unique story as it is. But when you're kind of you let go by the Colts and then you go to the Raiders and have to sort of pick up your life and move it to a new location, like what does that do to you personally in terms of your friendships, your relationships? Are you living in temporary housing or did you have a permanent house in Indianapolis? Like how does it work personally? Personally for me, that was like the challenge I dealt with pretty much my entire time in my career. I had never been working for a company one and working for a company with such a high turnover rate in the NFL. So trying to create real genuine relationships, knowing that the person sitting to your left and right could get let go at any point. Yeah. It's tricky. I always did, you know, I was fortunate to be in Indianapolis for a number of years. I didn't buy any property, but I was renting and just renewing on an annual basis. So when we got the call and moved all the way west, we actually moved our things and then we drove from Indianapolis all the way to the Bay Area because we had three cats at the time that we didn't want to fly with. So I will say it was very volatile. And then getting here and I was let go within two weeks of moving and paying more money for rent than I've ever paid in my entire life. Because you're in the Bay Area. (laughs) Exactly. Going from the the Midwest to the Bay. It's a little expensive out here. So it was um, the deeper you get into professional sports, the more you feel like an independent contractor. Uh It's less. I don't want to take away from the team aspect to any fans that are listening, but you are a hired gun. You are a stock that's either going up or going down. You have to bring something to the table. And basically when they're done, they say, thank you for your service and you're gone. That's just the reality of the business side. So most of it is trying to stomach that intrinsic motivation that you always had as a kid for your respective sport or whatever it is that you love to do. So it's really tricky when you start moving teams because you're, you have no relationships. You have no one quote unquote, supporting you other than maybe one scout that's pushing you in these meetings behind the scenes. So a lot of it is just how bad do you want to continue to play sports? Well, let's go back. I I really want to get to your beginnings. I want to get to Harvard Westlake, to Miami, and then how you find yourself to the NFL. So where did you grow up, Eric? So I'm originally from Lake Elsinore, California. My family originally was living in Inglewood or basically South Central Los Angeles and got a little dangerous down there in the early 90s. Mm. (laughs) So 
We decided to move out to Lake Elsinore, and I was there up until I moved back to Los Angeles for Harvard Westlake. And I'm forever thankful for my family. My dad was still working in Torrance at the time, so he was commuting roughly 75 miles a day, almost every day, working 12 hours to support the family while my mom was working in the school district as a librarian. So it was a busy household and it was the four of us. So the four meaning including my older brother, who's four years older than me. And how did you, you know, you were in Lake Elsinore and then kind of move back into LA? You said for Harvard Westlake, were you aware of Harvard Westlake prior to moving back? Was that a motivator to moving back? Or once you moved back, did you kind of identify the school then? It quite honestly was the only reason we moved to Los Angeles. Um, wow. When I was in Lake Elsinore, it's a great place to live, but unfortunately it wasn't feeling like I was being challenged or stimulated academically or athletically. So. Yeah. I was playing AAU basketball, traveling all around the country. And I remember this, I think I was like five. I told my parents that I want to be a freshman on varsity playing basketball. And they're like, that's <laughs> sweet. You know, good for you. And I, um, I actually held true to that and was, you know, working my tail off when I was really young. And then I heard about this thing called travel basketball. And it allowed me to go to Los Angeles essentially on a weekly basis. And that's where I was meeting who are now some of my closest friends at Harvard Westlake. And that's when I originally learned I was probably seventh going on eighth grade. That was the first time I had heard of Harvard Westlake. And I should pause here because this will be a recurring theme. Did you play organized football at all as a kid? No, no, not a single. I wasn't a fan. My dad, like my family were Raiders fans, especially when they're in LA. Yeah. But um, no, I thought it was boring. I didn't understand what was going on. So I <laughs> honestly, I think before I had signed with the Colts, the last Super Bowl I watched was in, and I'll just paint the picture. I started playing for the Colts in 2014. The last Super Bowl I had watched was in 2001. That's how removed I was from even, oh even like tuning gosh. in. Yeah. Because <laughs> even a casual fan watches the Super Bowl, but you, you were kind of completely removed. Completely from removed. Moderating. Yeah. <laughs> and so basketball was clearly your sport. You're playing AAU basketball, you're meeting other players you hear about harvard westlake what were your parents thinking at the time were they supportive from the very beginning of i'll say both my brother and ours journey my parents were always very very supportive they always wanted us to push 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 and try and basically don't be afraid to fail so literally challenge every boundary you possibly can get as much knowledge as possible so i was doing that in school and with basketball, I was always playing up, trying to play with older kids, older guys. So when Harvard Westlake came about and the thought of it, the original conversation was, okay, you'll live with your grandparents who still live in South Central and we'll see you on the weekends. We'll find a way to make this work because this definitely wow. sounds like the best opportunity for you to succeed. And so then tell me about your Harvard Westlake experience. You started in ninth grade. So your first experience really was at the middle school. Yes. Yeah. When I got there, the middle school was actually going through the kind of like remaining phases of the rebuild. So yeah. I got to see the original campus, which I thought was like the most beautiful place I had ever stepped foot on and couldn't believe that this was my middle school slash high school after coming from yeah. public school in Lake Elsinore. And I was overwhelmed from second one to my last day of my freshman year, but in all the right ways. I had never spoken to a professor before unless you know you're in trouble or something like that i wasn't someone that got in trouble but just the concept of speaking with adults about your academics was mind-blowing to me and honestly i have a tremendous fondness for it because i was 
pushed to my limits. I had to learn Spanish 1A and B. I'd never <laughs> learned anything in language. And it was truly just ripping the Band-Aid on how do I get to college and what does it look like to be around people that are highly competitive from an academic standpoint. And were there teachers at the middle school, let's say, that were influential to you and supportive of you through that journey? Yeah. So a story I always like to tell, and this was kind of my, uh, the stars aligned, I'll put it that way. I was in my world in Europe history class with Mr. Chinier, and it was the first time that I would leave every single session feeling like I know the information, but then I hadn't really had to study to the Harvard-Westlake caliber. And my first two exams, I'll never forget this. I studied for about two weeks for my first one, thought I knew everything, got my test score back. It was a 61, the lowest score I'd ever seen on any test I had taken yeah. to date. Second test, studied for a month. I think it was three weeks to a month. I was like, oh, I nailed it. And I got a 62. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. It was the first time that I had to truly like swallow my pride and ask for help. Yeah. And I had never really done that before. So I went to Mr. Wimbish, who was my academic advisor at the time. And I told him, hey, look, my family made a massive investment for me to go to this school. I'm letting you know that these test scores are not a reflection of who I am or how much I care about this. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure I succeed at this high school. And he laughed and he was like, I mean, I, I wasn't doubting you, <laughs> like, you're going to be fine. You just need to follow the Harvard-Westlake way and talk to your classmates and, you know, you'll get this under wraps. So yeah. he was amazing in that moment, just reassuring me that things are going to be okay. Mr. Chinye was awesome because he was so patient, kind of helped me build study guides and do all the necessary things to be successful. And then for the rest of the semester through the rest of the year, I think I finished that class with like a 92 or 94. Really? Wow. Yeah. And it was like, wow, okay. I figured this out. I think I'm going to be okay. Like I was, I mean, staying up all hours of the night, panicking, thinking, oh my God, we just moved here and now we're going to have to leave. I'm going to get kicked out of the school. It was a, a, looking back at it, it's pretty funny, but it was a very stressful moment at the time. I love that story kind of for both reasons. I mean, you to have the inner confidence to say this isn't reflective of who I am because, you know, being in a new environment, you might go, oh man, you know, it's, it's easy to doubt yourself. Sometimes you're in a new environment and it's challenging you and you say, gosh, maybe this isn't the right place for me, but you knew it was. And then to have teachers who listen to you and actually trust you and believe you and go, yeah, we think so too. You'll be fine. And, and here's some help of how to get there. So I love that. I had never gone to a place and felt that supported by people who weren't family. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest things, my biggest takeaways that I've really held near and dear to me, literally from the moment I left Harvard Westlake in 2010, is just being in an environment where you can push your boundaries, know you have support, and then also know if there's a question, like if you have a question, there's an answer. Yeah. I think like getting that in your early age of education and kind of just figuring out who your identity is, it's allowed me every moment that we're going to speak of moving forward to feel comfortable taking chances. And you certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> New environments would be a recurring theme, I guess. Uh, in your career. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and what about on the basketball court? Who were the mentors there? Was I imagine it was Coach Hilliard. Um, and if so, kind of what was his influence like? Yeah, Coach Hilliard was amazing. I, under his tenure at Harvard-Westlake, I was the second freshman on varsity. I'll never forget this because my freshman year, I was so excited. I had achieved my first goal 
that I'd ever set out for myself from a sports standpoint. I'll never forget this. My freshman year playing against Loyola, I started to have an anxiety attack in the middle of the game because this was the big rivalry game. It was the big moment. I'm the freshman with the big opportunity. And I want to, you know, again, it was that reoccurring theme. I want to prove to my family that this investment was worth it. And um, I could not calm down. Like I I'd go up and down the court twice and I literally was seeing stars. So I was going to pass out. And I, um, I'd mentioned this to coach Hilliard that I was just getting a little overwhelmed. Yeah. And he, along with my family were just so amazing in those moments to let me know like, Hey, you're supposed to be overwhelmed. This is supposed to be happening. Embrace the fact that you are in an awesome opportunity and it, yes, it's scary, but it's also exciting. And it was able to kind of help me flip that, you know, kind of on its head. And then along with that, which I forever thank my family for, I started doing yoga and meditating. And a lot huh. of that I was able to kind of bring back to Hilliard and talk with him about, hey, I'm finding this new thing that's helping me stay focused. You know, maybe we can talk with the guys about it. Maybe it's something that we can implement with the rest of the team. Hmm. It ended up being on a very small scale, but I was always able to have very candid conversations with him even when I pushed down to senior year when I was trying to pick my university and he was one of the first people because I was starting to get calls from lower tier schools all the way up to Ivy League. He was the first person to say, hey, look, you've put all this time in. You need to continue to push yourself because once you hit 18 and leave this school, no one's going to be doing this. So I'm going to help you right now with this decision. But understand, like, you're going to have to continue to do this moving forward. He was the person when I started getting recruited. And I was trying to show that I was kind of with the current times of basketball. Him as well as my very close friend, Mike Antanasio, both pulled me aside and said, hey, look, man, you have a skill set that's bringing success to this team, that's bringing leadership to this team, and will eventually do so at the collegiate level. Don't rebrand yourself just so people like you. That's not what you've done your entire life. I forever thank Hilliard for a lot of the very personal conversations that we had. And he was the person that, you know, helped me to build a routine and helped me to stay committed to the process and also just do things away from the team to make sure that I get myself where I need to be. And so then all the recruiting starts happening. How do you end up choosing a university from there? In the spirit of taking a lot of calculated risks, my 17-year-old self wanted to go to a top 50 school that's a power five conference with the most diversity possible. Those are kind of like the three things that I was looking through the U.S. World and Report at all the different universities, reading the statistics, going through, seeing schools that were recruiting me or weren't. The way everything came about with Miami was actually kind of interesting is they had sent me a letter my junior year. But as I had stated earlier, we moved from Winnetka to Studio City. That letter was left in a box when we moved and I, wow. I had completely lost contact with University of Miami. So Things were going a little slow in terms of my true goal of playing for a Power Five conference. I was getting offers from smaller schools. Harvard was loosely on the table, but offering financial aid, not a full scholarship. I still wanted to get that true Power Five offer. So we ended up digging through all the boxes. So we found the Miami letter. I actually wrote an email to the athletic director and was like, hi, my name is Eric Swope. I don't know if like I'm still on the radar for the basketball team, but would love to chat with you guys if that's possible. I ended up connecting with them. It was around like right around Christmas break and they just so happened to be paying Pepperdine at Pepperdine. Mm. So they came to one of our practices 
I love my teammates forever for this. They kind of built me up and let me have like a really good stellar practice. <laughs> and then I went to the Pepperdine game, met with the coaches, and then they offered me shortly after that. And again, in the spirit of taking risks, I actually committed before I visited because I said, my dream is to be an NBA player. If I can go to the ACC and be as successful as I've been at Harvard Westlake, I'm an NBA player. And if I'm not, that's my reality check. And that was literally how I made my decision. I committed, I signed my letter of intent. And then I went on my visit and was like, oh my gosh, Miami's an amazing city. Like yeah. this was the best decision, but it was definitely a risk. And um, I'm still very thrilled that I chose University of Miami. And tell me about being a student at Miami and, and kind of the social experience, but also the academic one. So Miami was definitely a culture shock. I would call it a mix between Santa Monica, Las Vegas and integrate South American culture. That's like the best way I can explain it. So academically, I found myself quite honestly, which blew my mind. I was actually bored after coming from the speed of Harvard Westlake. Yeah, I was kind of clawing and reaching and trying to get as much information as possible. And it was very interesting when you get to the collegiate level, especially in sports at Harvard Westlake, if you're an athlete, that is an extracurricular activity. School comes first. When you play for a Power Five conference, you're bringing revenue to the university. So the model switches. Mm -hmm. I understand why that's the case. I get the business side of it, but it was definitely something that I personally struggled with because I really, really wanted that Harvard Westlake stimulation. And it came in waves in, in terms of, you know, when you get to some of these intro classes, when you first get to college, it's just part of what you got to do to get the paperwork, to get your major. Academically, kind of had some highs and lows. Athletically, I was presented with far more challenges than I originally expected, but in all the right ways. It made me realize I had built a decent foundation for myself, but in terms of the quality of athlete that you're associated with when you play in the ACC, everyone is the best you've ever seen. And I had been exposed to that with travel basketball, but then seeing that and like the calculated strategies that apply in college. And then while I was there, we also had a coaching change. So I, did, I had to learn multiple offenses while I was there. That's where I was getting most of that, for lack of a better phrase, my academic stimulation is I got a chance to like really study and learn basketball from a fundamentals and technique standpoint. So my sophomore year, Jim Laranega became the head coach. He brought in a whole new staff, clean house. And that's where having that professionalism and learning what that really meant to be a professional and, or at least have the, the aspirations to be a professional. Coach L was the main person that kind of broke that barrier and got us exposed as a team. And we went from being mid to low tier to being the ACC regular season and tournament champions, which was the first time in school history. Wow. And so how do you go from there? Like, when does the kind of NFL idea start coming to your mind? Where the NFL came about was during ACC play, right before ACC play, actually, I had a conversation with my head coach about being a senior leader and what that entailed and how can I bring greater success to the team. That year, we were projected to be terrible. Mm -hmm. We ended up being 500, which was a huge win at the time. Kind of during this big swing, I was starting the vast majority of the games. I played more basketball than I had played in years. 
And I had a few plays that got me on Sports Center catching alley oops above the rim, just like one handed catches and stuff like that. And that is what garnered the attention of the NFL. So hmm. during ACC play, after the regular season, we lost second round to NC State. And I had a conversation with my coaches hey, look, I want to play overseas. You know, I'm graduated with my economics degree, which is awesome, but I want to try and further this journey. So we had that conversation as they spoke with myself and our other three seniors and then followed up with us on our flight home back to Miami. And as I'm finishing up my conversation with Coach L, he's like, so I have this really weird scenario and I'm just going to run it by you. So just hear me out. And I was like, okay, cool. And he's like, so there's a scout from the Denver Broncos and this was 2013 going on 14. So just to frame it. The Broncos had just gotten the doors beat off them by the Seahawks. So a Super Bowl team, though. Yeah. The Denver Broncos are interested in you potentially coming and playing for them. Like, is that something that would interest you? And I burst out laughing because I thought it was a joke, first and foremost. I was like, you told them that I, like, I'm not a fan. Like, I don't even watch the Super Bowl. I don't, exactly. I don't even watch the <laughs> Super Bowl. And they're like. Yeah, but he's been very adamant that they just want to see if you have what they call football traits. So I get home from the flight. I was living with my older brother who was getting his master's at the time. And I come back and tell him, like, dude, you're never going to believe this. Apparently, the Denver Broncos want me to play for them. So I'm, I guess I have a chance to play with Peyton Manning. <laughs> and uh, we laughed about it. And I was kind of like, ah, whatever. Back to training. Let's you know, Let's go get ready for playing overseas. And from that moment on, it was just the only thing I could think about. I was in my training and like, was just in no man's land, just thinking about, you know, what if this could be the thing that I've been waiting on? So after about a week, I reached out to the scout and let him know, hey, look, let's do this, let's do a workout, but let's do it on like a day where no one is gonna be at University of Miami because if I suck, I don't want people seeing that I'm terrible. And he thought it was funny. He was like, yeah, no problem. I'll bring my daughter down. We'll make this like super informal, but I'm going to take you through essentially what you would do at the NFL Combine. Now, I was familiar with everything because part of University of Miami's summer training is training for the NBA Combine. So uh, actually when Vine, the app was still like about, you know, little six second videos, mm -hmm. Miami's pro day just so happened to be the day that I called this scout and they were posting the exercises on Vine. So I was watching those doing like gentle walkthroughs with my brother. And then we bought a football and we're playing catch. Wow. Now that was my seven day prep for my NFL experience. We did that all week. Then the following week I did a full combine. So bench press, vert, broad, 40, the whole nine yards. Literally the scout had to show me how to get into a 40 yard dash stance. No idea what that was, how to do it. And the awesome thing that came from that is one, I ran a four, five, eight Two, the statistics that I put together. And yes, they were just on hand clock would have actually made me the number one tight end coming out barring bench press. Wow. And then I ran routes for the first time there. I, I can't imagine if I saw them today, but I caught every single pass and this was wow. thrown from the current quarterback that was at university of Miami, Stephen Morris. I caught every single pass. I had this great 40 day and I was like, wow, this went really good. And it just so happened. I didn't know this, but it was the final spring practice for University of Miami's football team. So there was media everywhere when we had to take the field. And a lot of the folks that were covering the football team also covered basketball. So they were like, you know, why is Eric here? Why is he with an NFL scout? 
my brother had the unique idea at the time, you should make a Twitter profile and tweet at the NFL and all its mo like major publications that you're gonna enter your name in the draft. Let's just see, because this workout went so well. Let's just see if we can get you a second one, just in case the Broncos pull out, because that, you know, that could be very realistic. Yeah. So if you go to my Twitter, it's my very first tweet. And after I tweeted that, I ended up, I think over the course of about six weeks, I worked out for 13 teams and I did like phone interviews with pretty much the entire NFL. And then this is how quick the process went. I took my last final on Thursday. I graduated on Friday. It was my birthday on Saturday. <laughs> I signed with the Colts Sunday after the draft as a free agent. And Monday morning, I was in Indianapolis for practice. Wow. And you had never played organized football before that practice? Never had played organized football. Another huge caveat to this opportunity, which I'm forever thankful for, is when I was going through this workout process, there was this one super successful guy that had kind of done what I had done at University of Miami, and his name is Jimmy Graham. Yeah. I met Jimmy my freshman year when he came back just for bye week. He was just coming to say hi to some of the guys that were still there. I reached out to Jimmy and said, hey, I'm trying to essentially do what you did. And his response was, well, you need to figure out what motivates you to play sports because football is not as much fun as basketball. It's not really fun at all, quite frankly. So you need to figure out your real motivation. And after that, meet me at 8 a.m. and we'll start working out together. Wow. So he was actually my mentor through pretty much my entire career. And I trained with him alongside a laundry list of University of Miami greats to basically get my foundation started. Before we kind of get to the next step, I have a brief anecdote. I, the summer of 2004, I interned for the San Diego Chargers. They were the San Diego oh, yeah. Chargers then. I interned for the team, and that was the summer after Antonio Gates's first year. And for those who don't know, Antonio Gates was someone who only played college basketball, I think at Kent State. Mm -hmm. He didn't play football, yet came to the NFL and had a, an amazing NFL career. But I didn't know who he was at the time because he had not been a star in college, obviously. And the coaches just loved him. And it was a thing. around all they had, We had some other tight ends uh, at camp that summer, and people were just kind of over the moon about this guy, Antonio Gates, and the way he moved, and the way he used his body. And the way he could catch the ball and the way he could run. And I didn't know that within, you know, a few years' time he was going to the Pro Bowl and now is going to go to the Hall of Fame and is one of the best tight ends of all time. But he was, I imagine, one of the first to kind of make this transition. Is that right? Yeah, there's only there's a small handful. Um yeah. when I was doing because one of the early ways I was learning how to essentially play tight end was our playbooks is on an iPad and you can get as much film and tape as you want uploaded from the video team. So anyone with a basketball background i tried to get as much tape of their gameplay so antonio i just had like hours upon hours yeah. tony gonzalez is he another one yep tony gonzalez marcus yeah. pollard who's actually he had spent a long time with the indianapolis colts in the peyton manning era and i he was mm. one of the early people i met he still works with the jacksonville jaguars and a player engagement side of things but he's another basketball transition guy it's only a, a small handful, and then especially ones that didn't play in college. It's you, I mean, you're getting down to single digits. And why? It seems like they're all tight ends. You know, I play another anecdote. This will be a little embarrassing. I played freshman football at a public nice. high school. That was that was as far as I got was playing freshman <laughs> football. But I was a tight end. Actually, I played the same position because I'm pretty tall. Why tight end? Why is that a position do you think translates so well for this? Again, this small number of kind of basketball turned football players. 
Yeah, so I will give you one polar opposite hyper successful story is Julius Peppers. Mm. Defensive end, played oh, right. basketball at North Carolina. So right. here's the reason why. When I did that original workout, and this is just to paint a really broad picture, I was told if you run sub four five, you'll play wide out. If you run between the four five to four eight range, tight end. And if you're four eight or slower, defensive end. Most of these basketball. What if you're much slower than any of those? Is if that, you're then much you be, smaller than you work at Harvard Westlake someday. Then you work at Harvard Westlake. It's a great scenario. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, don't mean to interrupt. Please, please proceed. Um, it's mainly that you have guys that have a natural knack for tracking a ball. Yeah, they are used to kind of as you were explaining with Antonio Gates. They're used to using their body and leverage points, which is massive when it comes to high pointing. Kind of like focus. boxing out in basketball? Exactly, exactly. That becomes very integral in the tight end position. And just when you come from basketball where you're playing offense and defense, right? You're used to kind of flowing and having a multitude of jobs where football is very, very specialized, but tight end is the one position that has multiple jobs. Well, I'd say running back too, but the NFL is had more consistent success having those mid-sized basketball players who are maybe a little bit heavier but are rangy in their movement and general flexibility transition over to tight end and for the most part the wide receiver market is dense with insanely fast talent that even the defensive end market is outrageous the tight end market is kind of this this niche that Get slept on until you watch these hyper successful Rob Gronkowski's and Greg Olson's of the world take off. Travis Kelsey's, Darren Waller's, the list kind of goes on, and that definitely fits that basketball build. And so, so take me there. So you get to Indianapolis Colts kind of training camp that first year. How does that learning curve look for you when you're coming from literally zero football to playing with the best football players in the entire world? Like, how do you keep up? How do you learn? Like, how do you try to cut it? So this is where I am very thankful for one of my nearest and dearest, actually two teammates, but I'll speak specifically to tight ends. My teammate, Jack Doyle, was mm. the person who my very first day in training camp showed me how to put on my pads, showed me how to put on the right gear, made sure I had the right gloves on. I mean, down to the bare bones, like I'm a little boy. Teaching yeah. me like, hey, dude, so you might want to give yourself 30 minutes because putting on the pads and getting the gear on kind of takes some time. And he helped me with every step of the process. And I felt very thankful that one, the franchise was very patient with me. Yeah. But also in the spirit of football is there needs to be a consistency of development. So one of the best things that happened was me getting an opportunity to play in the practice squad. My first day of training camp, I'll never forget this. The first drill we had to, you know, get everyone riled up was one-on-one -on -one pass rushing against the best DNs on the team. And and I'm this tight end. And I went against Robert Mathis, who's a Hall of Fame great sack leader of all time. Yeah, He's the very first person. And he was so excited to just embarrass me in front of everybody, but in good spirit, but embarrass me. And let's just say it was it wasn't my best day. It wasn't my best performance. And I've never been hit that hard. And I will never forget it because one of the first things I was told when I got to the Colts from at the time, we had a lot of guys that had been playing 12 plus years all the way up to Adam Vinatieri, who played for, I think, 24 years. Yeah, there was a thing they always said to rookies, which was be seen, not heard. Find a veteran that you respect. Get there before he gets there. Whether you become friends or not, 
study him, figure out every nuance that he goes about and everything that they possibly do. The person that I studied was Reggie Wayne. Mm. I spent more time in the facility than I spent at home by a long shot. On average, I'd say my days were about 12 to 16 hours that I was at the Colts facility doing stuff. And my rookie year playing on the practice squad, I got very close to a lot of the veterans and they were willing to point out nuances that I wasn't aware of to help me to understand little tricks of the trade down to diet, down to how do I stay fresh when it gets cold outside? Like all these little things that you would know if you've played, but they were patient enough to kind of pull me aside. Hey, young guy, we see you're working hard. We, I had to put on 40 pounds my rookie year. I mean, it was a rough year and I did not leave my rookie year saying, oh, I love football. It was <laughs> like, what the heck did I just choose to do? I don't even know what's up from down, but everyone is telling me if you figure this out, you'll be very successful. So I, in a lot of ways, leaned on not only my teammates, but also my coaches, much like Mr. Wimbish just telling me, hey, man, yeah. you're going to figure this out. Just keep going. And who were throwing you passes back then? Who were the quarterbacks? So when I first got there, I had the pleasure of working with Matt Hasselback as the backup quarterback mm-hmm. and Andrew Luck, who I befriended very early on. And he actually from his time at Stanford, knew a fair share of Harvard-Westlake kids. Oh, is that right? So, yeah, yeah we, we bonded, like, the first week of training camp when I was like, oh, yeah, I know Jonathan Martin. I know all these different folks. And we kind of were like, oh, wow, like, we should have been friends in a former life, essentially, yeah. like, if football didn't bring us together. And we're still close to this day. But we bonded very early. And then throughout the stages of my career, if Andrew ever wanted to do some, like, extra work away from the team, I didn't understand why at the time, but he would always pick me. He'd be like, hey, look, mm. Saturday, we're going to do a, like an hour throw-in session with the coach. Can you be there? And I'm like, sure. I'm thinking it's a group of people. It's just me and him. And I'm like, wow. He was always very supportive of me and gave me a, more opportunities than I'll ever comprehend to at least just be a part of the team and learn how to run routes. And you mentioned there were coaches as well that were supportive yes. during that time. Yeah. So um, Rob Chudzinski, who was a special assistant to the head coach when I first got there, was actually one of the main reasons that I went to the Indianapolis Colts. He, uh, after I worked out for one of their scouts, he called me every two days to make sure I was healthy and to see if I still wanted to come to Indianapolis. And he explained to me, which is kind of awesome that you brought up the Chargers, is he used to be a tight end coach when he was there. He played tight end at University of Miami. And he's been a head coach in various places. And he told me, look, I worked with Antonio when he was wet behind the ears. You are a very similar build, and I will teach you from the ground up. Come here, meet with me on the off days, because I will be very busy, and we'll make this happen. So that's exactly one of the main reasons I went. And he ended up getting promoted to offensive coordinator, which, again, politically really worked in my favor, because I've been meeting with him for two years every day at the time he was an integral part of me cultivating that foundation and trust within the locker room that i could be a valuable target and a valuable asset to the offense so you talked about all the hard work obviously the extra hours on weekends and with coaches and the long days and learning the basics how do i stay you know on a cold day in in indiana (laughs) (laughs) how do my hands not freeze those types of things can you talk about maybe some of the joy of it like what were the if you can think about the, the highlight of those years with the Colts or maybe a moment when you started to feel like maybe I do belong here. Yeah. So my first catch 
is one of yeah. those very, very real moments. We were playing the Houston Texans on Sunday night football down in Houston. My dad had flown in for that game. This was like the sixth game of the season. And I'm like, man, I just want to get that first catch. Like, I, I just want to, like, I'm supposed to be this hybrid tight end. I'm not making any plays. And I'm just primarily playing special teams at the time. I'll never forget that game because I went in and I was told we're playing against JJ Watt and Jadavion Clowney. You're still kind of learning how to, how to run block and pass protect. You're probably not going to play much that game, but stay ready. First play of the game, our starting tight end rolls his ankle. Two receivers roll their ankles. And we were literally down to five skill position players, which and basically in order to play in a football snap, you have to have five eligible receivers. Yeah. So it was myself, one of the tight ends, two receivers and a running back. And I ended up playing the entire game. My very first play was essentially they were faking a run and trying to throw something deep to the wide receivers. Something that a million times in practice, it's like the rep you go on autopilot because you're like, oh, yeah, I'm not getting the ball on this one. So I do my little job. I run kind of toward the Houston Texans sideline. And when I turn back to look at the quarterback, he's running for his life and staring me straight in the face. Andrew's like, go, go, go. So <laughs> Kind of a broken play. Yeah, it was a broken play. The pass yeah. rush got through. So I'm running toward the sideline as fast as humanly possible. He throws me the ball. I catch it literally by the tips of my fingers. There was a defender on me that dove. And I end up breaking the pass for, I think it was either 25 or 35 yards. Wow. I had never thrown a stiff arm before or really actually been tackled. So I'm hauling tail up the sideline. A deep safety was coming to get me out of the play. And normally if you watch a football game, the guy just runs out of bounds or he tries to make something awesome happen. Well, I was just in no man's land because I was like, oh my God, I'm still running. <laughs> and I got hit so hard. I did like two front flips and I had this massive welt on my thigh, but held on to the ball. We had no issues. I think we may have gone down and scored, but I'll never forget that moment. Cause it was like, when I got on the bus to go home, I had a bunch of text messages, obviously, because family was watching Sunday Night Football. But the yeah. text messages I had were from Jimmy Graham, Reggie Wayne, Antonio, wow. or I think it was uh, Jonathan Vilma. It was like a number of like football greats that were like, hey, you know, great yeah. to see you get your first catch. Like, now it's time to build. So that was one of the first moments. I was like, okay, I think I'm going to figure this out. Fast forward to like week, I think it was 14, I caught my first touchdown, which was, to this day, I had this conversation with Jimmy Graham. He was like, You've dunked on a lot of people. Catching a touchdown versus dunking on someone, you'll never forget essentially like the high that comes from it, especially if you do it on the road. And my first touchdown was in Minnesota. It was a game Adrian Peterson had just came back. And so everything, it was expected that we were going to get blown out. We ended up beating them 41 to 16. And I scored my first touchdown on three specifically designed plays for me to get the ball on. We ran all three plays in a row. I caught all the passes and the final catch was a touchdown. Wow. So, yeah, that that was a, a, a really fun year. And did that beat a dunk? That beat a dunk. <laughs> I, I got one I just have to share because it was the coolest experience ever was my last year in Indianapolis, played against Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, Thursday night football, and my fiance, who was my girlfriend at the time, was a big Patriots fan. I brought her to the game. It was the first time someone had, like, traveled with me like she flew on a separate flight but it was the first time having like someone that significant with me and also one of my other classmates austin wilson was also at the yeah. game 
Sure. I ended up scoring what should have been two touchdowns. They downed me on the one, on the second one. But it was also Tom Brady's 500th touchdown. Julian Edelman, it was the comeback year when he was actually Super Bowl MVP that year. So that was the moment that I'm like, oh, I'm not just like a guy anymore. I'm a real football player that's having real success against top-tier defenses. That was the moment I was like, I'm a professional athlete. How crazy is this? So I want to, before we have some kind of gets to know you questions to wrap up, mm-hmm. you recently spoke at a, a dinner called the Spotlight Dinner, mm-hmm. which underscores the impact of financial aid at Harvard-Westlake. And your words were very powerful that evening. And as you know, there were a lot of students that were honored that evening as well. But I don't know if you want to take just a moment to talk about kind of the impact of financial aid and how that impacted your uh, career at Harvard-Westlake and beyond. Yeah, I mean, essentially, if there's no financial aid, I don't go to Harvard-Westlake. My family, you know, we are doing well, but not Harvard-Westlake well, quite frankly. And if it wasn't for that potential opportunity to be on a quote-unquote scholarship, this whole conversation, this moment right now wouldn't even be available. And I'll never forget my senior year when I was at the Spotlight Dinner. It was a lot smaller than the one that I spoke at. Yeah. Um, Was the, you know, in high school, you're just trying to graduate and get your opportunity and move forward and go to college and start your life. And even though it was at the end of the year, it was a real reflection point where I had classmates that were doing things that I didn't even know a human being could do at 17, 18 years old. And just that realistic understanding that everyone that I've been associated with for the past four years is trying to do something great in their own respective ways. And There may be folks that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, but the fuel and the fire to succeed in their respective ways is ever present and evolving as we go. And I'm I'm still close with a vast majority of my friends literally just had a birthday party with Harvard Westlake friends that I've now known since I was 14 years old. And they're still holding themselves to that same accountability. And, you know, when I was speaking to the kids, that was kind of what I was alluding to is that you're coming from this awesome experience with all these unique individuals that all kind of have a specific skill that they're, I mean, the best at, or if not going to be one of the best at one, stay close to these people, not because of financial interest, but just to stay intellectually curious. You've been around people that are always trying to like channel that. And on the flip side, another thing that I had shared is, Everything that I've done in my professional career has had ties to Harvard-Westlake. The Indianapolis Colts were moved from Baltimore to Indianapolis due to Mr. Hudnut's older brother, who was the mayor in Indianapolis and negotiated (laughs) the deal. You know, my current occupation, my previous sales role was through another colleague at Harvard-Westlake that was able to put me in touch. There's very unique individuals that understand who you are before the quote-unquote successes of whatever these different kids are going to be exposed to. Don't forget that because it's very easy to get lost in the sauce kind of as we are maturing and just, you know, trying to carve out our niche and find our own identities. As you know, because you've, you've listened to the sporting cast, there are a few standard questions that we end with. They relate to Los Angeles where you don't live now, but you're hoping to return back yes. to Southern California. And we are known for our movies, our food and our climate. So first, what is Eric Swope's favorite movie? Pulp Fiction. Without a doubt. It's a violent, crazy one, but it was the first time I was exposed to a film, one, that's out of order, and two, like, every second of dialogue matters in the scenery, like, just 
it was the first time I was, I think, I, I can't remember how old I was. Hopefully I was old enough to be watching it, but yeah. I've fallen in love with most of Tarantino's work. I just, I love the way he goes about film and just keeping you on your toes and making and it music. Lo- the, the music's great. The, oh, the music is unbelievable. Yeah. And so, yeah, that would definitely be my favorite. That's a really good choice. I remember seeing that for the first time. It just blowing my mind that a movie could do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, Secondly, what's your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Like when you're back home, is there a meal that, you know, you you make at home or your parents make at home or a restaurant that you love to go to when you're back in LA? There's one specific pizza place that was close to the last townhouse that I lived in. That's called Joe Peeps. It's Mm. off Wissett and Riverside. Small little place. They have two locations. And when I was playing basketball at Harvard-Westlake, you know, they want the parents to bring food, make sure the kids feel good when they leave. We happened to stumble across this place that was like 500 feet away. And you could literally order a 10-pound pizza and think of a, you know, a big group of growing boys. What would we want more than a 10-pound pizza? So I don't get that much anymore. But if I'm ever in the Valley and, you know, just kind of have some time to kill, I always try and stop at a Joe Peeps. Thirdly, what's your favorite place in LA? Could be a uh, part of town or a street. The Third Street Promenade. When I was uh, at Harvard Westlake, say with most of my friends, it was where we connected. Going from there to walk down Venice Beach, or also, you know Santa Monica to Venice Beach. My parents actually met on Venice Beach, so Is that just right? yeah, they they met in between restaurants. It's a bit of a long story, but I just have a fondness for that area. If I'm ever in LA or have even just time to kill, I don't know, I'm not necessarily going to shop. Just the energy over there, being near the water, I'd say pre-COVID, like the fun street music and comedians and stuff that'd be there is just so lively. So I just always really enjoy, even if it's just for like 20 minutes, just take a stroll. I, I really, really enjoy it. So lastly, I know you are not a parent. You're engaged to be married. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, I'm a parent. I have two little girls. I have a three and a half year old and a 10 month old. Amazing. And I'm, I'm always look. Yeah, thank you. I'm always looking for parenting advice. And so I'm wondering from you, kind of, are there things that your parents did or values that they gave you or lessons that they imparted to you that you kind of think about? You've mentioned the different educators at Harvard Westlake and at, at Miami and coaches and peers and players, but are there things you can think about from your own parents, your own household growing up that would be instructive to me as I think about kind of raising my own, probably going to be very tall kids. (laughs) I like it. So there's two main things I'd say that I was exposed to or that my parents instilled in me that I always enjoyed. The first, without a doubt, super simple concept, but it was if you start something, finish it. When I was growing up, there was a lot of like recreational leagues that we could do within the community or cotillion or I took like art school classes, just anything in the summer because my parents just wanted my brother and I to be busy and, and start to kind of carve out what we love to do. Their only thing was if we start something, if you sign up for something, I don't care if it's free or if it's a hundred bucks, you're seeing it all the way through. And if you don't love it, you don't have to do it again, but definitely see this thing through, go in with both feet, be present and, and see where it takes you. Cause I, I literally did every sport you could think of. I, I said, I did cotillion. I was a cub scout, all these different types of things. And most of it was like, at the time my friends were doing it, but my parents were very adamant that, Hey, if you're going to do it, we're going to see this thing all the way through. And then number two, and, and this is above all. And I, 
care about this more than ever, especially now that I'm seeing like my older brother has a son. Some of my friends are starting to have kids is just being there, being present, that quality time, you know, those first five years and no, I'm not a parent, but I've had enough of these conversations to, you know, understand the value. The first five years for a child feeling supported and knowing that basically they can do anything they put their minds to is everything. And that's what my parents, my grandparents, who I had the pleasure to be around, not only my grandparents, but great grandparents on both sides. And they all live well into their 90s and some are still living today is anything that we did as grandkids, we always had family present. They were always there, even if it was my dad working a 12 hour shift, literally getting off at 4 a.m. And I have a game at 8 a.m. and he had to sleep in the car, which I can barely wrap my head around now as an adult thinking doing that for your kids. But knowing that that one little moment when, you know, little Eric is going to look in the stands, he's going to see his mom and dad has been everything to me, will always be everything to me. And I know that when I do, you know, when we do choose to have kids, that was like one of the main things. It doesn't matter if it's sports, if it's anything that your child wants to do, that's piquing their curiosity, just being present. The amount of men that unfortunately either heard of or been exposed to that don't have that type of relationship with their kids. And it's solely due to a lack of effort is heartbreaking because that is what that child's going to live with and, and have as a frame of reference in terms of support. Well said. Well, Eric, thank you so much for this conversation. I love going back to your beginning at Harvard Westlake and the ability to find mentors and ask for help and how that translated to Miami and then the NFL. Like you kept finding people, it feels like, whether it was veterans or coaches that you allowed to mentor you and that you were comfortable asking for that guidance, it feels like kind of followed you that whole time. Oh, 100%. I mean, I've, I've gone into most things with little or no education on the topic. So <laughs> yeah. I can't even pretend to have the pride or the wherewithal to just say, hey, I'm going to figure this out. I know that I'll work hard, but to anyone who's listening, if there's something that you have a true passion for, try and find someone who's been successful at it. And then if not, Find someone who is just generally trying to push themselves as hard as they can and ask them why. And it's pretty awesome, the responses that you'll get. Eric Swope, thank you so much for joining the supporting cast. 